Amen. Thanks for reading, Mike. Thanks, Grant. It's great to be here to open God's Word with you all this morning, and I'm going to start with a question. I'm hoping this is going to work. Excellent. What do you see? A duck? Does anyone see anything other than a duck? A rabbit. So we've got a duck and a rabbit. Does anyone see neither of those things? Good. We can all see something. Some of us will see a duck, some a rabbit. When we look at the same thing, we can see two different things. When we look at the same thing, we can see two different things. And it doesn't just happen with pictures of a duck or a rabbit. This is um, came out about five or six years ago and kind of did the rounds on social media. Um, it kind of took over Facebook and Instagram for a while. When we look at the same thing, we can see two different things. It doesn't just happen with ducks and rabbits. What do you see? It's happening in our world today. Tragically, we've seen um, this week, we've heard that, that 40,000 people, over 40,000 people have died in the Turkey-Syria earthquake. Um, when we look at that event, what do you see? Some people will see a humanitarian disaster. Some people will see failed leadership. The president of Turkey has collected taxes over a number of years um, to help buildings with earthquakes, uh, in areas that are prone to earthquakes. Some people will see a wider political issue. Should those with more help places like Turkey and Syria? What do you see? What do you see? And I think one of the questions we ask is, what are we meant to see? We don't know. How do I know which of those I'm meant to align with? How do I know what I'm meant to see when I look at that event? And more importantly, what does God see? When God looks down at our world and sees it fractured and broken and not as it's meant to be, what does he see? And what does he think? What does he feel? Does he even care? And if he does care, what's he going to do about it? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We've seen Jesus in 4K, looking up at his life close on earth. We've seen how he interacts with the world. And this morning, we're going to answer three questions. Firstly, what does Jesus see? Secondly, what does he feel? And thirdly, what does Jesus do? So first, what does Jesus see? Well, what has Jesus been seeing? We get a summary in chapter 9, verse 35. Have a look with me. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. It's a summary of everything we've seen over the last few weeks in chapters 8 and 9. We've seen loads of his healings, haven't we, over the last few weeks. We've seen Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed one, God's chosen king, showing us signs of what his kingdom is like. Al Stewart, a few weeks ago, really helpfully reminded us that the world is broken and fractured because of our sin, our rebellion against God. And so as Jesus comes into the world and into contact with a world that is suffering the effects of sin, we see him deal with them. We see his mission to overcome sin and its effects. We see firsthand in chapters 8 and 9, the sin doctor dealing with sin. Did you see it in verse 35? He healed every disease and sickness. Every. That means I think we can be sure there was a time in Galilee where there was no need for hospitals, no need for doctors, no wait lists. 
The king is here, and he's here to bring his kingdom, to conquer sin and death. And so as we read verse 39, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 35, let's not skim over it. It's a great summary of up to this point from everything we've seen. Jesus is the one with authority over sin and death. I'm just going to take a moment. Is my microphone causing loads of trouble? Yes. Keep, as in yes, keep going, or no, change? Move it away. Am I spitting on it or something? How's that? Is that sounding better? Should we try that? And wave at me frantically if it goes wrong again. Thanks. Um, we see Jesus' mission. We see him on earth. The message is clear. He is the one with authority over sin and death. And as he goes around seeing the effects of sin and death in the world, he sees the crowds, the same people that he's been healing and preaching to. And how does he see them? Did you see it? How does he see the crowds? When he saw the crowds, when he looks at them, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in Greek, there's more than one word to see. Take it out of my pocket and clip it on my back pocket. Let's see if this works. No. Should that be okay there? Great, thank you. Apologies. Um, as Jesus sees the crowds, what does he feel? What does he think? What does he see? People harassed and helpless. I was saying in Greek, there's more than one word for the verb to see. Some of them mean just to kind of to look or to notice or to observe. The one that's used here is to see or to perceive. Not merely just to look at something, but to see beneath the surface. That's what Jesus is doing here. Beautifully, he sees beyond the exterior. He sees inside. He sees our hearts. He sees us as we truly are. And as he looks at this group of people, as he sees them as they really are, what does he see? People harassed and helpless. Harassed, trouble in some way afflicted on them, and helpless. Some translations use dejected as if they've, they've been thrown to the ground. They've got no hope. And part of the reason they are so lost, they are harassed and they are helpless, is because they are sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, um, rulers of God's people were referred to as shepherds. Their job was to nurture, to care for, to build up Israel, God's people. So, for example, in 1 Chronicles, we see God appointing individuals to oversee his people. They are called shepherds. And in 2 Chronicles, we see them fail to do their job and the people are scattered. How are they described? Like sheep without a shepherd. Sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus sees now. He looks out over the crowds and he sees sheep without a shepherd. The failure of Israel's leaders in a world of sin and death has led to a lost people. And I want to ask this morning, do we see the world like that? as harassed and helpless, because we too live in a world suffering the effects of sin and death. We see a world permeated with disease, with death, with poverty, with pain. I've no doubts that many of us over this last week will have experienced or witnessed or been reminded of what it is like to live in a fallen world. 
We live in a world that is lost and it is without hope when it is faced with the consequences of sin and death. Is that how we see it? Because I'm not sure it is how we see it much of the time. Take affluent Amelia. Affluent Amelia uh, works in the city. She works hard Monday to Friday. She's one of Sydney's best young lawyers. Um, She's driven. She's determined. She's climbing up um, the professional ladder. And come five o'clock on a uh, Friday afternoon, um, she comes back to Surrey Hills and she's on Crown Street drinking cocktails with her friends, um, spending just a fraction of her astronomical disposable income. Saturday morning strolls, Sunday coffees, After a nice weekend, she's relaxed, she's refreshed, she's ready to go and do it all again on Monday morning. What do you think when you see affluent Amelia? She's fine. She's sorted. She's got purpose in life. She's driven. She's determined. She's okay. Jesus says she's lost. She's like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says she's helpless, and she has no hope when faced with a world of sin and death. Do you see what Jesus is saying? If I want to see the world as Jesus sees it in 4K, I cannot continue to look at people like affluent Amelia or my family and my friends and my colleagues who do not know Jesus as fine. They're harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They might look fine on the outside. Jesus sees in and says they're lost. First, what does Jesus see? Secondly, what does Jesus feel? What does he feel? You probably noticed as it was read, when, G- when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Jesus feels compassion. When he sees people as lost, he feels compassion for them. The literal word refers to the gut. In Greek thought, the gut was where you felt your emotion. We would probably use the heart today. It is kind of to be moved in the inward parts to feel something so deep right to your core. That's the word that's being used here. Um, In England, we have a phrase, if you're you're really upset about something, you'd say, I'm gutted. Um, It's that kind of idea. And as Jesus looks at a world under the effects of sin, he sees the crowds as lost, and he feels gut-wrenching compassion for them. He feels it right to his core. His heart goes out to them. And so do you see how radically different the king of this kingdom is to the leaders of Israel? Where the leaders of Israel left the people harassed and helpless, dejected, Jesus sees them and has compassion on them. There's a story, you might know, in Mark chapter 12, where a widow puts two small copper coins into the temple treasury. She's putting them into the temple treasury. That's going into the Pharisees' back pockets. And you can kind of picture the scene where the Pharisees would be there watching this old widow, helpless and harassed, giving everything she has to line their back pockets. They leave her harassed and helpless, and Jesus comes in and has compassion. How radically different and wonderfully different is Jesus? Jesus is seeing and feeling the very things that Israel's leaders failed to see and feel. And so as we begin to unpack this passage, we begin to see Israel's true, compassionate shepherd in the person of Jesus. I think there are two things that we can see from this, two questions to ask. The first is, is that how we view Jesus? Do we genuinely view Jesus as compassionate? 
When we're aware of our sin, our helplessness, when we suffer the effects of living in a fallen world, when we sin, do we see Jesus as compassionate or do we think he's sat there waiting to wag his finger and point at us? Do we see him as compassionate? Jesus sees all these things. He sees our hearts and he is moved to his very core with compassion for us. Isn't that a king you want? Isn't that someone you want to follow? Isn't this so radically different from all the secular leadership that we know? How many of your bosses or people who have authority over you genuinely have gut-wrenching compassion for you? Jesus, the true shepherd, does. And he backs it up. John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Is that how we view Jesus? The second thing, is that how we view the world with compassion? If we see the world as lost, do we then have compassion for the world? Do we look out at a world of suffering and sickness with gut-wrenching compassion? Or do we look at people who live their lives in direct opposition to Jesus and feel compassion for them? Um, I don't know if any of you know who this is. I know the Brits in the room will. Hands up. Does anyone else know who this is? Yes, we would have covered all Brits, all those who have lived in England. This is Matt Hancock. I kind of think of Matt Hancock as maybe Mr. COVID. He was the health secretary. Um, He's no longer, and you'll find out in a minute why. He was the health secretary when COVID kicked off in the UK. And he sort of became a member of every household because at five o'clock every afternoon during COVID in 2020, he would come onto our screens And we'd all watch and tune in. He would give us the graphs and the stats and everything that was going to happen and kind of new rules that were being implemented. All the really heavy stuff went to Boris Johnson, the prime minister, if there's going to be a new lockdown or something. But he would kind of give us the twists and the turns that happened along the way. And we all looked forward to five o'clock to hear what Matt Hancock had to say. We kind of liked him. Um, And he would give us the good news and how things were getting better and stuff. Um, And then in June 2021, it all changed. It was found out that he had been cheating on his wife during the lockdowns. He had broken all the policies he had been enforcing. As we heard these policies from his mouth, he hadn't been following any of them, or most of them. What did the nation feel towards this man? You charlatan, you jerk. How dare you, you selfish, lying hypocrite. What does Jesus feel? Compassion. He sees him and feels compassion. You see, as we lean back and point the finger, Jesus walks towards him with open arms. He says, I see you as lost, and I am full of compassion for you. You need me, and I can help you. Remember two weeks ago what Jesus said? I have not come for the righteous, but sinners. Here we see a heart or a gut full of compassion. We see the sin doctor, Jesus, who is here to overcome sin and its effects. He is the hope we need, the true shepherd of Israel. First, what does Jesus see? Second, what does Jesus feel? Thirdly, what does Jesus do? See, if he really cares, he'll do something. What does he do? Look with me at verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The first thing he does is he gets his disciples to pray. 
don't know about you, it surprised me when I first read it. It's a surprise because we've seen so far, Jesus is the hope we need. He is the sin doctor. Why not set up a hospital? Go heal everyone. Or at least set up kind of more college Galilee or something. Train people up. Church plant. Do something. Don't sit around praying. But he does send people out, but it's not the first thing. First thing is he asks his disciples to pray. Did you notice the line in verse 37? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What is the harvest? It's a world that's harassed and helpless. Who are the workers? People who are going to go out into the harvest and proclaim Jesus. How often do we, as Christians, look out into the world and think, the harvest is so small? The harvest is so small. Jesus says, that's not the problem. It's the workers that are small. It's the workers that are few, not the harvest. We need more people going out into the harvest. Um, I was thinking, it took me back to good summers in the UK. If you're July and you're a strawberry farmer, um, berries are delicious in the summer in the UK. If you're a strawberry farmer and the harvest is plentiful and you go out and you look over your fields and all you see is a sea of red, what do you need? Workers. You need people to come and pick the strawberries. The harvest is plentiful. It's the workers that are few. That is what Jesus is saying is happening here. Ask that the Lord of the harvest would move in people's lives, that they would be so full of compassion for the lost that they would go out, that the Lord would send people out into the harvest so that they may hear about Jesus. So if we see the world as lost in 4K as Jesus sees it, if we have compassion, our right response is to pray. We will ask the Lord to send out workers into the harvest so that people will encounter the love, the life, the freedom that Jesus offers. Um, the word ask in English doesn't quite do this justice. It's, it's stronger than that. It's kind of to plead or to beseech, to ask urgently. Is that how we're praying? Similarly, um, send out doesn't quite do it justice. The real word is kind of outthrow. So are we pleading with God to fling out workers into the harvest? This isn't the sort of thing where we look at a mission partner stuck on our fridge once a month and think about them. This is consistently pleading with God to send people out into the harvest because people need to hear about Jesus. That is what he's calling us to do. Is that how we pray? We're called to by Jesus, the compassionate shepherd. Um. I don't know if you've seen um, little Evie, Grant's little girl, kind of, she's on the weekend away at the moment, but she'll see her toddling around, um, around church. Are we praying for her, that as she grows in knowledge and love of Jesus, that she would be a harvest worker? As we gather at community group this week, we'll eat together, we'll look at God's word together, we'll share our lives together. Are we praying that we would be sent out into the harvest where God has placed us to hold out Jesus? might sound a little bit selfish, but us student ministers, we would really value your prayers that we would be trained up well so that we'd be sent out into the harvest and pray that we'd be sent out all over the place. Sydney, rural New South Wales, schools, hospitals, prisons, worldwide. Pray that people at college would be sent, raised up and flung out all over the world to the harvest where people need to hear about Jesus. 
We heard last week at 9.15 um, about some of the scripture teachers here at Vine who volunteer to go into schools every single week to tell kids about Jesus. Pray for them and pray there would be more of them. Plead with God that he would raise up more people to go into the harvest because the world is harassed and helpless and needs Jesus. And as we pray, let's pray boldly. Let's pray, pray confidently, expectantly. There is a harvest. It's plentiful. Let's pray that God would send out workers. 11 a.m., are we praying? Are we praying? Do we pray for God to send out workers regularly, or do we just think about it every now and then? And it makes logical sense to pray. When we're so moved inside about something, we'll want to pray. And so if we see the world as lost, if we have compassion, the action, Jesus says, is to pray. That is what we'll do. Is it that we don't feel compassion? Maybe we need to pray to ask God to give us compassion. I've been really convicted this week or in the last couple of weeks as I've prepared this. So I've written down in places where I'll go regularly to pray for the harvest. I've realized I don't do it nearly enough. I don't plead with God to fling out workers. I need to be doing it more. Jesus asks us to pray. He also asks us to proclaim. Proclaim what? Well, we're not called to do what the apostles are here. This was a specific mission at a specific time in God's plan. So this is um, often called the little commission. We get the great commission at the end of uh, Matthew's gospel. This is the little commission. We're not called to go only to Jews. We're not called to raise people from the dead. We're not called not to take a bag or an extra shirt, as some of the instructions here are. But Matthew 28, the Great Commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Here's our message. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Baptize. We're asked to baptize a baptism of repentance. Jesus offers forgiveness. We're to introduce people to the person of Jesus that they would repent, receive forgiveness through him, and what? To teach them to obey him. Introduce them to Jesus, the forgiveness he can offer, and to obey him, living with him as king and shepherd. And as we, as we pray these things and we have this message, let's be ready to be the answer to those prayers. We can sit and ask God to send people out. He might just be calling us in various ways. We can all pray and proclaim. We can all do those things. We can all be a part of this mission. We can share with colleagues, family, friends, the life, love, and freedom that Jesus offers. That might feel daunting. You might think praying was a challenge, but I think I can do that. To go and proclaim, that's one step too far. I'm not an orator. I'm not good with words. I'm not impressive in the eyes of the world. People won't listen to me. Have a look with me at chapter 10, 1 to 4. I love this. There are the names. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the Iscariot, who betrayed him. You notice in there, there's no Simon the Olympian. There's no Andrew the CEO. There's no Matthew the MP. These are not impressive. 
in the world's eyes. They're not successful in the eyes of the world. He takes a group of ordinary people, fishermen, workers. He takes a tax collector, for goodness sake. They don't have to be particularly religious to do this. And he, he gives them the authority to carry out his work. You do not need to be impressive by human standards to do God's work. These guys weren't. The Great Commission, just a few chapters later that we looked at. As he gives them instruction, he also gives them a promise. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promises to be with us as we go. We're not alone. Where does this leave us this morning? Where does this leave us? You might be here this morning outside of the kingdom. You wouldn't call Jesus your king and your shepherd. Have you encountered this Jesus before? Not what you've heard not what you think you might have seen before. Have you seen this Jesus, this compassionate, loving Jesus? To be told we're lost and without hope is confronting. But when we see ourselves as we truly are, as Jesus sees us, as the sin doctor sees us, and we acknowledge who we really are, it is totally liberating. And as Jesus sees you as you are, his heart pours out to you with compassion. He is so full of compassion that his mission wasn't just to tell, but it was to go to the cross and die for you. He is the only one with authority over sin and death. And he loves you enough to give his life for you. And this morning he invites you. He invites you to turn to him, to have him as your king and your shepherd. Others of us might need to ask the question, do I see the world rightly? Do I have compassion? Am I praying and proclaiming? For some of us, that will be Monday to Friday at work in the harvest field where God has placed us. For some of us, it might mean considering, is this something I need to think about full time? Will I go to college and train? Is ministry right for me? Am I going to be a missionary? Am I going to go abroad? Literally flung out somewhere in the world. Some might be setting aside a little bit of time each week, maybe helping with the kids' program at church. Are there ways that we can be proclaiming? My, um, my cousin used to have a, a pretty brutal job in London. I remember I was part of his Bible study group for a year, um, his community group, and we would sometimes he would come home from work. He'd work a 12-hour day at work. He would come home, do, do community group, and then go back into the office to work basically through the night. Um, during that particularly busy season, um, he gave up one of his four weeks of annual, annual leave to help on the kids' summer holiday program. Um, an example of someone who was so moved with compassion that kids needed to hear about Jesus that he gave up one week of his annual leave. That might be you. There's a guy at college who I met last year. He, he's probably... He's certainly one of the brightest men I know. He was headhunted by Google. He was in Queensland. I said, it's so cool to be headhunted by Google. From Queensland to work at their offices in Sydney. Um, and he only works four days a week for them. One day a week, he comes into college so that he can learn more, so that he can be better equipped and more useful in the harvest. He doesn't want to go into full-time ministry. He knows he's not cut out for that. But he wants to be useful in the harvest. And he is praying and he is proclaiming in his workplace Finally, my wife's grandmother, who is a dear, faithful, praying servant, at her 90th birthday party, 
we were at last year. Um, wider family, our generation, the cousins, none of them know Jesus. Um, and when the cake was brought out and she blew the candle out, she slowly stood up and just took a minute to explain the good news of Jesus to those who didn't know her there. She had been praying for years and she was proclaiming as well in that little harvest field that she knew she had been placed in. There's just a few people I know who are filled with compassion, who are prayerful and are willing to proclaim in the harvest where God has put them or where they're willing to go. Three questions that we've seen this morning. What does Jesus see? He sees people harassed and helpless, a world harassed and helpless. What does he feel? Gut-wrenching compassion. And what does he do? He asks us to pray and to proclaim. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, may we see Jesus as the true shepherd, our only hope in a world that is harassed and helpless. Help us to see the world rightly. Help us to feel compassion. By your grace, help us to pray. And in your strength, may we proclaim the saving name of Jesus. Amen.